Hello, and welcome everybody to According to Andrew's 100th podcast. I didn't think I'd ever get here, but here we are. And uh, today we're going to have a good time talking about uh, libertarianism and anarcho-capitalism specifically, and why it is simply uh, feudalism by another name. Uh, we're also going to talk on uh, some of the other things, like what came first, uh, uh, property rights, or uh, private property rights, or public property rights, um, and things of that nature, along with the folly of mercenarism, which kind of ties into the whole thing. So that's kind of our outline, and we get to reference one of the great literary writers or uh, statesman thinkers of all time, Machiavelli. Who doesn't like to hear from Machiavelli? So that's what we're going to be touching on today. <clears throat> so to get into it, um, let's kind of define feudalism, what it looked like, things that uh, make it interesting. So uh, let's kind of lay out the framework of anarcho-capitalism. So anarcho-capitalism, the idea is uh, everyone is supposed to be their own king. Uh, the, they take it to kind of like this extreme version of uh, quarter-acre kingdoms, right? And all property is private property. Uh, you have to have permission to come onto people's property and stuff like that. Creates all kinds of legal issues and, and stuff like that. And it, to actually run this kind of system would cr uh, effectively would... There's a lot of cultural kind of things you could do, but it also, the more political entities you have and the more they have to kind of cross-communicate, the more complex the various uh, institutions and cultural systems to get those systems to work, or to get those individual units to work together, uh, they have to be. And so, in reality, it would be a legal nightmare. Um, and we can kind of see this when we look back at feudalism. Uh Feudalism had this weird system of uh, kingdoms and principalities and uh, lesser nobles and, and greater nobles, and they had varying uh, loyalties to different uh, kings and stuff like that, and, and power was split between a lot of different people, but even uh, sometimes when various monarchs and stuff like that would call for war, sometimes weird things would happen where it's like this, uh, you're like allied with two different uh, factions, and they both decided to declare war on each other. And you're kind of in a weird position as like, well, I, who am I supposed to go to war with? Uh, who has precedent on, on various loyalties and stuff like that? And so it created this weird dynamic in terms of uh, how things worked uh, social or uh, not social, geopolitically, I guess. Um, a great book that discusses this that I've talked about on the show before. Um, I have a, what's it called? I have something, uh, oh, a book on that I've read about this called uh, what is the name of it here? The Rise and Decline of the State. So this kind of talks about um, how the institution of the state got developed, but one of the critical parts in how that developed was the struggle of the various uh, factions between each other during the medieval period, because this these warring kind of ideas, or these warring groups, uh, are what created the feudal society that we know of. And the thing that kind of caused its collapse was the plague and um, various other issues, excessive taxation and stuff like that. Um, I know people complain about taxation right now, but when the state initially got introduced because of uh, getting rid of the amount of nobility and stuff like that, and the long, uh, think of it kind of as a toll bridge. Uh, and, you know, you don't want to cross the toll bridge, but it's like, let's say it's the only bridge across the river. So you have to cross it and you have to pay this toll to this person. Well, like, let's say like 50 different people had a claim to it. So not only do you have to pay one toll, but you have to pay like 
50 different tolls to get through this bridge. So there's a, a very heavy tax burden on you. And then the kingdom, uh, let's say they're taking like 5% of your, your overall tax. The first person that gets to take the 5% gets more and then it gets successively less. And so the kingdoms were, were getting a lot less money when they finally created a bureaucratic system to kind of cut out a lot of these middlemen and stuff like that. The amount of money that they had exploded. And with this explosion of money, they're able to hire uh, larger, more concentrated militaries with more advanced uh, sieging equipment and stuff like that. And they were able to con uh, consolidate their power even more and things like that. That's how things uh, snowballed into a state society from a feudal society. Uh, and similar things would happen in an anarcho-capitalist society as well. Uh, but the main four factions that were uh, vying against each other were uh, the nobility, the uh, crown or the monarchy, the towns, because uh, like siege equipment, it was really hard. So you could have just kind of independent uh, city-states type situations where they're just kind of their own trading town. They had uh, a lot of money so they could afford um, you know, militaries and things like that. And they could have the equipment needed to defend themselves adequately. And they were basically, you know, you had your outlying areas, which were used to gather food and stuff like that. But then you had the centralized fortification. And then a lot of the industry came out of these towns. And that's how they were able to kind of remain independent. Uh, or they were very rich through trade um, and in a position that was really hard to conquer, i.e. Uh, Venice. Uh, is the quintessential example of that. Uh, and then you had the church, and they had stuff everywhere, and this is where things get really weird, and people don't necessarily understand this. This is something that shocked me a lot when I first read uh, The Rise and Decline, and just kind of... It was hard for me to wrap my brain around, but it was because it was very confusing. Um, where a lot of the land that's in modern-day France and England and uh, Germany and things like that was actually owned by the Catholic Church because when uh, the Roman Empire declined and fell, these areas were taken over in uh, by the Catholic Church and their institution because the, basically Rome fell away and like people were kind of lost. They needed some kind of structure, some some kind of uh, s people to run and maintain the various systems that existed throughout Rome. And a lot of the stuff that Rome did put there kind of fell by the wayside. It was no longer used by them, but uh, the vacuum that was kind of filled uh, was done by the Catholic Church. And so they ended up having claims to a lot of these lands, and a lot of times people would uh, give their land over to the church or pledge to be a part of this uh, church area because they had like better tax rates and things like that. Because uh, I think generally the tithe was set at like 10%, never really went above that. So if you had like freeholders who were kind of in a situation where they're let's say they're land bordered uh, ecclesiastical uh, territory or uh, a lord's territory, they could kind of choose which one they wanted to serve under. And because they offered the better deal, a lot of them chose to go with the ecclesiastical. And that's uh, and then during the Reformation, a lot of... Uh, so the reason those territories don't exact, exist anymore is that during the Reformation, all those territories were seized um, in England and in Germany. And then I believe... Uh, I don't know when they got seized in um, France because France remained Catholic through the Reformation. Um, but the Catholic Church either might have seeded, they might have seen the writing on the wall and ceded a lot of that land to France to kind of keep them as allies, uh, or they would have lost it probably during the Napoleonic era because that's when um, the France went from being a Catholic country to 
Um, well, I guess atheist at that point, which kind of created a whole bunch of other issues. We're not talking about that today. Um, so, uh, yeah, so you had these different factions. Oh, and uh, what if Altis has a good example of, like, how vast these territories were. So he said, like, imagine if you were in, like, Pennsylvania, right? And, you know, you're right next to Ohio, and all of Ohio is owned by the Catholic Church. And, uh, you know, upstate New York is also owned by the Catholic Church, and Virginia below you is another state or whatever. Like, it, the territory was vast. I think um, of all the various states, like, I think they owned, like, a third of the territory in France, and similar numbers were in England, I believe, and I'm not sure about Germany. But there's a lot of uh, territory. So I, I guess in the United States, that equivalent would be, like, I think 15 of the states out of all of them. Uh, let's just do a quick calculation here. Do to do, do divided by three. Yeah, fi uh, 16, 17 states. Uh, if they were they were just owned by uh, the church, very kind of different way of looking at things and kind of seeing things than our modern day lens. So, getting back to kind of how this uh, relates to anarcho-capitalism. So, the idea behind anarcho-capitalism is um, that each everyone is kind of uh, a kingdom unto themselves. And that's kind of, the, that's what you kind of get in terms of society. Now, uh, the benefits of this is borders get confused because they're complex system of alliances. Uh, violence is usually kind of constant and it's not concentrated in one group. So uh, I had talked about the church, monarchy, and nobility. Um, and the towns, because those are all seen as equally um, strong peoples, they they were constantly vying and and declaring war on each other, and so there's a lot of low-level conflict. Now, the thing is, this avoids is massive world wars, right? Uh, because you have a lot of constant low-level conflict, uh, the chance that it coalesces into a large, because um, there's so many little factions that, you, that are all against each other, getting them all unified in one direction. Uh, is basically, it's like herding cats. It's not really possible. Um, and the primary objective of the areas that were being ruled was security. Um, you know, that's why you have your knights and all that stuff. So that was kind of the thing that they were supposed to do. And there wasn't a ton of ways and a ton of great ways to uh, prevent mercenaries and roving, roving bands of brigands from kind of ruining your day. So they did their best to uh, maintain and make sure that that kind of stuff didn't happen, obviously. And then, obviously, larger wars, like 100 years of war between France and England, um, were conflicts that kind of caused a lot of issues for those various peoples. So, why does it look like... Uh, so, in an anarcho-capitalist state, the idea would be that uh, companies are would effectively act as the nobility in this sense because they are the people with the most wealth and the most concentration of power, and so they would... There's a lot of issues that go along with this. We'll touch on those. Uh, but the, these concentrations of power are the things that would create this alliances and systems that we, we would have. Um, there's a lot of people that already... There's already, like, a bureaucracy and a, uh, people that work for them, so in that regard, it would work pretty well getting those things off the ground. Um, and because they have this concentration of capital, uh, they can use that to kind of uh, coalesce their... A kingdom and just buying it all now uh anarchists generally see this as a fine thing um i don't necessarily but 
there's not really a huge difference in terms of like there's their delineation between um, money and power is something that kind of gets them uh, confused. So they're like, well, as long as they didn't violently take it, then it's fine. Uh, and on the surface, that seems to make sense. But if we kind of look, uh, there's a good way of looking at this that I saw the other day, which was, uh, so someone had commented on this guy's blog, uh, better reduce everything to power instead of uh, money. And he responded, uh, they go together. Here's the definite, definitive equation. Uh, money equals power, i.e. capital equals power. Uh, that's because money or capital is just generic human utility abstracted and distributed as coinage, paper, or digital data. Money and power both come down to utility, so the equation uh, is locked. Either you get the power by force and then use it to steal the money, or you steal the money and use it to bribe and threaten your way into power. Either way, it comes out the same. And so this is the degenerative uh, aspect that would happen in an anarcho-capitalist uh, state. Um, and on top of that, going off of this idea is... Um, if an anarcho-capitalist commune or state existed, it could be conquered with nothing more than the dollar. Uh, all a nation would have to do is buy up the property within the nation and establish uh, that you established, and because everyone is an individual and freedom is the highest imperative, there is nothing stopping the outsider from buying the land. Uh, so basically, they come to someone and they're like, uh, "My house is worth a hundred thousand. It's like I will pay you half a million for it." And they're like, "Wow, what? That seems like such a good deal." And they take it, and there's nothing to. Uh, check foreign money coming in and just buying the entire country out from underneath you and now uh you're basically in this position of a serf in uh a medieval sense and this is why a lot of these analogies kind of uh, flow together so well is the serf uh, was tied to the land and worked the land and things like that <clears throat> but in exchange for that he got protections and a lot of pr uh freedoms in that regard uh it wasn't uh, like slavery and things like that. So, uh, and then on top of that, when they buy that out from you, so they could just keep you on the land, but on top, uh, they could just topple your entire, uh, government, or in this case, non-government organization, uh, by buying up the land and slowly immigrating people to that area that do not align with your values until you are, uh, no longer in a, in a Kapistan, but a colony of whatever nation has been buying up that property. So, uh, we'll just use, even though China is not really an expansionary power, we'll use China because they've been buying a lot of property in, I believe, uh, Australia and uh, Canada. So they're basically doing this in those two countries. I think America as well, but those are the two that I think they have a much higher percentage uh, when com uh, compared to America. Uh, and Australia is a great target because it's so close and they have a m excess of people so they can kind of funnel uh, some of those people there if they ever run into issues. That's a side issue. Anyway, um, so they've been buying up capital there and, you know, they slowly move people in and all of a sudden you'll see the government being more pro-Chinese or having Chinese ideals, uh, moving towards a uh, total process democracy and things like that, uh, which is kind of the, the way that Xi is framing, uh, Chinese, uh, way of governance now. And, uh, the way our democracy is working out, you know, it might be a better choice, to be honest. But uh, that's neither here nor there at this moment. Uh, and so you just kind of end up in this this area where uh, you, because you have this 
your your freedom is your, the thing that you hold in the highest and most utmost regard. You can't do anything to defend yourself uh, because there's no laws, there's no centralized body, and because each uh, person is a kingdom unto themselves, they uh, the you can't have a cohesive society. You're just a bunch of individuals, and so uh, for the enemy that is going to try to destroy you, you you to yourself has already done the job of dividing yourselves for them, and now all they have to do is come in and conquer, which is why it's an inherently weak system. <clears throat> but um, that kind of, it was a little bit muddled, but hopefully you can kind of see how some of the feudalism and things like that uh, tie in. Maybe I need to do something specifically on exactly how all the, the aspects of feudalism work. I should probably reread uh, Rise and Decline of the State, that section. Uh, but you can read that if you want to. Um, I did do a recap on uh, this book, or at least the state system, on one of my videos. I'll link that in the corner box thing. Uh, for you guys to check out uh, if you want to after this video. I think that was one of my better videos. Um, so the other thing I want to talk on was uh, the use of violence and why it doesn't really work within uh, the framework that they want it to because everyone effectively works out to being a mercenary. So a lot of times uh, anarchists... And libertarians will simply say, well, you can use private security to solve all your issues, and uh, why is national security better than private security? And luckily, we have our friend Machiavelli to explain why it doesn't work that way. But the, the crux of it is uh, mercenaries are terrible soldiers. <laughs> um, you never want to use mercenaries, and the people that are fighting for uh, Taco Bell are inherently going to be mercenaries. The people that are your private security are inherently going to be mercenaries. And on top of that, there's a lot of incentive structures to make it so that they uh, tear down your society instead of uh, maintain it. So, uh, let me just check something real quick. So, doo -doo -doo. Um, so let us read Machiavelli's little thing from the prince on... Uh, how many kinds of soldiery there are there and concerning mercenaries. So, jumping to the mercenary section. Mercenaries and auxiliaries are useful and dangerous, are useless and dangerous. And if one holds his state based on these arms, he will stand neither firm nor safe. For they are disunited, ambitious, and without discipline, unfaithful, valiant before friends, cowardly before enemies. They have neither the fear of God nor fidelity to man, and destruction is deferred only so long as the attack is. For in peace one is robbed by them, and in war by the enemy. The fact is, they have no other attraction or reason for keeping the field than, to trifle, uh, than a trifle stipend, which is not sufficient to make them willing to die for you. This is why nationalism is so important. Uh, or having fighting for a cause of nationalism. Uh, they are ready enough to be your soldiers while you do not make war, but if war comes, they take themselves off or run from the foe, which I should have little trouble to prove, for the ruin of Italy has been caused by nothing else than by resting all her hopes for many years on mercenaries. Uh, jumping ahead to get past this example. Um... I wish to demonstrate further the infidelity of these arms. The mercenary captains are either capable men or they are not. If they are, you cannot trust them because they are always aspiring to their own greatness, uh, either by opposing you, who are their master, or others, uh, or others contrary to your intentions. 
But if the captain is not skillful, you are ruined in the usual way. And if it be urged that whoever is armed will act in the same way, whether mercenary or not, I reply that when arms have to be resorted to either a prince or a public, then the prince ought to go in person and perform the duty of a captain the public has to send its citizens. And when it is sent, who does not turn out satisfactorily ought to be recalled. Uh, so that kind of ends the idea of uh, mercenaries that he was talking about. And he goes into some actual examples. So that's what uh, Machiavelli's... <clears throat> frame or talks about and so we can take those and extrapolate them out to what it would look like in a private uh, security sense so what are the things that uh Ankapistan has to bulwark against this uh quite frankly not very strong so the general answer that libertarians have is uh everyone gets to use violence and therefore it can kind of check itself and if you don't uh but this inevitably runs into the issue of the mercenary, of the gang, uh, where you're going to have organized and concentrated people. Um, another example is uh, companies that have accumulated wealth provided the transition from government to not government doesn't collapse everything. Um, but let's say some people are going to have accumulated capital, and with that capital, they can uh, hire armies. Now, uh, if those armies are mercenary, they're not going to be very effective armies. But if they can use their money to hire armies and uh, focus their, this is why propaganda is so focused on getting people to lay down their life for uh, king and country, right? Those are, you want to defend your family, you do want to defend uh, the people that you um, love and, and things like that. Those are things that are worth dying for. Uh, dying for a paycheck? Nah, I'm out. <laughs> um, so, and then it gets into another issue. So, uh, gangs already exist in society today, and it is fair to assume that the same would be the case in an anarcho-capitalist one as well. To protect against, to protect against these, uh, private security could be hired, but there is nothing to prevent the private security from simply becoming the gang uh, that they will hire to protect you. This is Machiavelli saying uh, they are ambitious and therefore uh, will take the better uh, deal, especially if the cost-benefit is in their favor. Self-interest is the main, but not only dictate libertarians judge decisions by. The other primary one is the non-aggression principle, uh, that you sh which is that you should not aggress against anyone unless someone has aggressed against you first. But what is there outside of social convention to enforce this? Uh, COVID has shown that on uh, that social conventions are a very fragile thing. Take, for example, something as simple as a formal greeting. Before COVID, it was an unspoken uh, social convention that when you greet someone, for a job interview or something like that, you give them a strong, firm handshake and say hello. Uh, give you your name, things like that. Uh, now we can't even agree on whether or not we should uh, shake hands because the mass hysteria stirred up by COVID. Uh, an anarcho-capitalist anarcho society is just as susceptible to this type of propaganda, especially to those organized in the undermining of the non-aggression principle as they are highly organized and motivated in their designs to acquire power. Therefore, there's nothing to stop these people from... Uh, undermining and using their things to uh, use violence and then subject violence against them. On top of this, you have the ever-pressing question of, if I get organized and I use violence against people, who's going to freaking stop me? And the answer is basically nobody. Eventually, you're going to run up against the, you know, 
eventually an organized group is going to run up against a bigger organized group and they're generally and there's only so much territory that they can hold uh and it gets to a certain level that it becomes too bureaucratic and collapses yes all of this stuff is true but at the end of the day um yet yeah, like a gang isn't going to be able to take over all the united states in general but to act like uh those who are willing to use violence and use violence to uh, get their means to their ends to achieve their things. Now, they still have limits on them, right? Uh, if if you've basically said violence is okay and we're willing to use violence for things, uh, fear only goes so far in keeping people controlled. And so you have to uh, do some moral legitimizing to your violence on top of um, giving a reason for people not to fight back, right? So it's like, look, we... Uh, you swing in, it's like, okay, we can kill you, or you can give us a potato. Most people are going to be like, you know what? Potato. And that's generally how taxes work. And they can become overbearing like they kind of are today, but in general, uh, for the things that people... Like, I would much rather give away 30% of my um, money than get executed, right? Like, that's just a trade I would take. Like, and that's a trade that, or I guess in the libertarians sense, you know, it's like, oh, if you don't give them this money, you get thrown in jail. But like, quite frankly, yeah, it's, that is kind of how it goes. And most people are okay with that trade. Does it, it suck? Does it kind of, you know, does it feel like you're che You're basically being extorted for your money. Is that true? Yes. Is there anything to prevent the, that extortion or things from, uh, not being done? Uh, no, because violence exists. People are, there's going to be people that have desire to use power and use violence to achieve their ends. And um, unless you are going to use power and violence back against them, it's really the only way to kind of keep those things in check. You know, power, uh, and on top of that, you have, uh, you can undermine their cause through various moral um, things too. Because we talked about uh, uh, fourth generation warfare and how you have those intersecting cross dynamics where you have uh, the physical the psychological and the moral and uh those that stand on moral grounds are going to have a stronger claim but the matter of the fact is there will be some organized per, uh group that uses uh that will have a moral claim generally via a sense of nationalism a sense of uh, cultural unity that is going to end up controlling the uh population and creating a nation state which is the greatest outgrowth of tribe and the most stable society or the largest stable society that exists currently within society you can have smaller stable societies as well uh feudalism is an example that we have and we might be going back to feudalism at some point obviously you can go down to tribes and stuff like that but uh nation states are kind of what we're at right now and they seem to work pretty well i like them uh so to touch on the last little thing here is um what was it oh private property and public property. So the general assumption is uh, private property preceded public property. And uh, the argument is, well, if I go and make a spear or a fishing pole, uh, that is me creating private property uh, that comes into me and that is how it existed. And in a certain sense, yes. But I would say that the abstract of public property was written into law and defined far sooner before public property and it was only after these two things were defined that uh that in a sense public property became before that so i will 
go through this. Uh, so Hoppe, I was reading uh, Democracy the God That Failed by Hoppe, and he quoted Mises, which I'm pretty sure is from Human Action, which is a book I have and have yet to read, because it's 900 pages, and I haven't decided to conquer that beast yet. But quote that he has basically says, uh, his assessment is that the division of labor is what made competitive societies because uh, cooperation yielded more stuff and therefore a higher standard of living. Uh, however, this is completely ahistorical. Uh, we know, through, though at the time uh, Mises was writing, this research may not have been completed, and if it was, it certainly would have been harder to find than uh, admit, and for him to miss in his day. So I'm giving that caveat. Um, that tribal societies are extremely egalitarian uh, and communal, not because a moderate... Uh, Oh, because it moderates the envy of the tribe. Uh, this innate disassociative uh, trait would need to be overcome in some fashion. Uh, wait, hold up. Did I read that right? Anyway, uh, thus religion came in and gave a purpose to work together. So basically, uh, nobody is born into this world just solo. Like, we work in tribes. Everyone kind of comes together, and that's how human societies work. We're communal. We uh, have things to work together, but we don't necessarily want uh, to do the work unless we have a reason outside of ourselves to go do things. Uh, there's a certain amount of self-interest that goes into most of our decisions, but also uh, nothing we do is purely self-interested, right? Um, we, like, I want to do something to make someone else happy is a lot of times a motivation that we have. And so that, in that, you will both have a, uh, a self selfish and selfless kind of act kind of tied into one and that's a lot of how human action works uh so religion came in and moderated envy uh it also set up much of the structure that we recognize as government today so if you read um uh, forgive them or debts by michael hudson he talks about uh getting rid of all the jubilees and stuff like that but a lot one of the things that he touches on is kind of how uh Temples and stuff like that were the first things that were erected, and uh, the first kind of governments revolved around uh, not kings and stuff like that, but a shaman character, some kind of temple, and it, especially in the early uh, days of society, it kind of zigzagged between those. So um, communal societies, usually their uh, rules and, and deference and stuff like that would be given to a shaman. Eventually, the shaman would give way to a, a tribal leader, then once... Uh, uh, larger temples and stuff like that came into being. Those were kind of the main power centers within society. That gave way to uh, kings again around the Bronze Age. And we kind of go back and forth. Uh, and then eventually get the medieval side of societies, which kind of has uh, all of the power split evenly, at least within Europe. Uh, so that is that. But um, so it set up a lot of the structures that we have today, especially things like taxes, because uh, tithing and things like that, and a lot of that was associated with giving to the gods, uh, appeasing the gods and things like that, and then that was shifted into taxes over uh, time. Uh, so much of the cooperative elements of hum human society were brought in by the introduction of public property, not because we saw, we were like, we created our own stuff, and it's like, oh, wouldn't it be like nice to create more uh, stuff for ourselves? And the reason this doesn't work is because the most industrious, you see this in um, tribal societies, is the most industrious people are kind of beaten down. Of the, is it the Bantu? It's some African tribe where uh, 
they intentionally uh, rag and put down the dude who's the most successful and the person that gets the kill uh, because they don't want him to get too macho and try to uh, too alpha and take over the tribe and, and rule the tribe as their king and stuff like that. They want to keep things uh, communal because it's the best way that that small tribal society works. Um, but a lot of that kind of ties in with uh, keeping people's envy and stuff like that in check because if you had one dude who was just outperforming everyone, uh, you're going to have all the, the women want to get with him. So now uh, your ability to pass on uh, your ability to pass on your genes to the next generation for a lot of the men has been removed. And uh, he has all the stuff. Well, there's nothing that's keep... Without religion, without some of these other social conventions, there's nothing to keep these people... Uh, if everything is material, there's no moral qualms with murdering someone for their stuff. And this is an issue that uh, Ancapistan runs into along with these tribal societies. And that's why religion becomes the starting and most important focal point because uh, it moderates the worst of human um, tendencies and behaviors. We want to do X, Y, and Z, and because we're able to, con uh, because of religion, we say, no, you know, we need to give deference to this and this, um, but, and that's where you, like, don't be envious, but then at the same time, those who are very successful, they should give back, they should give to the church, things like that, and so, um, you know, when you see someone being very successful, and then they're able to give more to the church, they can... It, it can alleviate their envy because it's like, okay, well, they must have been blessed by the gods. And because they're blessed by the gods, they're able to give more back to the gods. So that uh, is fine. And maybe that will give me motivation to work harder myself kind of thing. So it's these kind of institutions, these kind of social conventions that build up our current modern society that we uh, don't see anymore. <clears throat> uh, hopefully, those that are watching the stream uh, got caught back up because I lost connection there. Um <clears throat> Continuing on, much of the cooperative elements of human society were brought in by the introduction of public property. In fact, even those tribal societies viewed all property as communal, making public property not really a concept until the tribal unit shifted from the size of the tribe to that of the family, as property-wise they act as, in much the same way. If you think about um, how your parents, especially when you were growing up and stuff like that, within a family unit, uh, you know, the money is a collective thing that works together and distributed out uh, as seen fit by the head of the household and uh, basically your mom and dad. And uh, and that's where a lot of our property and things like that, uh, a lot of our supposedly private property works kind of in the same way where it's, it's not individually based, but it's family-oriented. And that's why uh, uh, family-oriented um, Society is the best way to model a society, in my opinion. But that's a discussion for another day. Uh, thus, wanting to keep certain properties within the tribe or family became important, and thus private property rights were born out of it. Uh, so you had private property, and you didn't want that private property to get lost to uh, other tribes or other families. You wanted that uh, private property to be passed within the tribal unit, the family unit, and... Thus, it became important to establish who, uh, this is what I, is mine, this is what I want to give to uh, those people, and things of that nature. Uh, so, it could be said that public property preceded pro private property in that regard. Uh, 
going back to the temples and why they're a source of cooperation, uh, people are inherently lazy and solipsistic, uh, aka somewhat self-centered. Um, and unless there is something calling people to a higher, higher purpose, there is limited to no driving force for anything to do, uh, for anyone to do anything besides eat and try to uh, have sex and repro uh, reproduce. Uh, religion gives a society the higher purpose, uh, and from there, they there has sprung a well. There has been a wellspring of other fields that derive status and higher purpose. Though I would say that religion still remains the higher purpose for most people. Um, and uh, just to kind of give Hoppe some credit, because he does touch on envy a little bit, um, he he touches on the idea of envy and its generative work on society, but claims it is only a small percentage that act on it. The reason he gives for such actors is that people can keep it in check because they know that it is bad or shameful. However, this is never quant a quantified statement. Uh, so basically, he's just like, well, it's immoral. But he doesn't say, well, it's immoral because of religion. It's because religion has set up the, the standard. Uh, and I'm being critical of this because a lot of libertarians and stuff like that I, I hear speak about use humanist and... Uh, this idea of universal uh, beliefs in various things that when we see how we've things have degenerated when we've lost uh, Christianity and stuff like that, these things don't hold. And having uh, val values based on your religious principles is important to keeping a cohesive society together. Uh, the only reason envy has... Uh, envy is seen as bad or shameful in Western societies is because of the Christian heritage of those societies. As we see Christian values erode, the amount of envious people has continued to climb. Though it isn't quantified, it may have, uh, though he didn't quantify it, it may have been written so as to not distract from the point being made in his book. Basically, you know, you can't put everything in your book, so it might have been a shorthand. Um, that's where I'm giving Hoppe a bit of a pass there. Uh, but even so, uh, libertarians always seem to ascribe Christian values to their societies uh, without ever giving it credit or even to go so far as to claim that they are uh, self-evident values. That's the other thing. The, the founding fathers, these these are so self-evident that nobody's written them down for two, th th we're the first time that someone's discovered it in 2,000 years. Yeah, super self-evident there, guys. Um, so that kind of wraps that up. Uh, hopefully you guys found that interesting. Kind of my touch on uh, Machiavelli and uh, and anarcho-capitalism, kind of its shortfalls and its, its shortcomings and stuff like that. Uh, I find it uh, kind of interesting to dive into this stuff. Um, I, do, I know a lot of people kind of rang on communism and stuff like that, and uh, some people might be critical of me because I don't do that. For me, um, communism has been so thoroughly bashed by everyone else. I'm going to leave it to them. Uh, but, uh, you know, this idea of libertarianism and anarcho-capitalism, that might be the next thing that fills the void out when our... When, when people are looking for a new ideology and things like that, this might be the one thing that one of the ideas that comes to the fore to try to fill the void. And I see a lot of issues in it, so I think it's uh, best to head it off the pass. We already know that the one doesn't work, so let's uh, not try to implement one that we can uh, theorycraft and stuff like that and show why it doesn't work ahead of time, so that we can hopefully create a sophisticated <clears throat> uh, society that has a cohesive ideology and and cohesive uh, way of working that does work. So that's kind of the idea behind that. If you're wondering why I seem to go after uh, libertarians more than communists, uh, communism's a joke, in my opinion, and most people know it. And if you don't know it, uh, well, you're either too envious or too dumb to actually care. Um, so that wraps that up. 
it's exciting to have hit 100, and here's to 100 more, uh, and hopefully you will hear from me again soon. Have a good day, and uh, like, share, and subscribe on my BitChute, YouTube, and Podbean, and where, basically wherever uh, podcasts are shown. Uh, leave a, a review if you would like. Thank you.